You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. The role of Ira Madison III will be played by several guest hosts over the next few weeks because I am hard at work with Angelina Jolie on the set of Salt 2, uh, making the sequel of my dreams. It's definitely a thing I'm doing and not the fact that I'm just uh, on set uh, for <laughs> the Netflix show that I'm currently working on. And uh, I'm going to be missing a few episodes of Keep It. So I will see you in a few weeks. Leave you with Lewis, Aida, and some guest hosts. And if any of them say that they hate it, don't look up in this episode. Don't listen to them because it was a great movie. I'll see you soon. And now we're really back. Sorry you had to sit through that Ira prologue as if this is an episode of Masterpiece Theater and he's Diana Rigg or whatever. Uh, I'm Louis Fertel, back from months of uh, uh, sabbatical from Keep It, it feels like. Omicron came and swept through like the birds of the film The Birds, and we remain standing. And guess who else is here? Introduce Nicole yourself, Meyer. ma'am. <laughs> Hi, it's me, guys, Nicole Meyer. Um, I just finished filming Nailed It, season 56. I'm wow. so happy to be hosting. They're now on a spaceship now. You're you're <laughs> you're developing coal products or something. Yes. Yeah. Tesla's making an icing brand. We're really excited about it. Um, <laughs> it's me, Aida. I'm so happy to be back. I have so much shit to talk. Um, I I was just telling Lewis, please don't ever let me act again. Zendaya made it look so easy. Yara Shahidi makes it look so fucking easy. It's not. I'm tired and I want to be here talking about opinions I shouldn't have. I just want to say I am already thrilled that you are going at pinball speed through hundreds of opinions <laughs> just as we need you. Aida is back. It is truly like life sent her to a gulag and Issa mm. Rae was the, you know, <laughs> ran the establishment. She did let me out of her clutches. We so will interrogate you about this momentarily, but we have a guest host today who is, in fact, one of my first friends in L.A. and frankly, a friend of L.A., Adal, friend of Crooked Media, he's one of the funniest people ever. He unfortunately knows more trivia than I do, so it's actually brave of me to bring him here. It is Guy Branham. Welcome to Keep It, Guy Branham. Good to be here. Very excited. The thing you said about knowing more trivia is not true. And Aida, what you've learned is that production value is a bad thing. It is the enemy <laughs> of fun. Like, we should all just want to be on shows with very shiny floors where everybody has already figured out the lighting, where we just slide mm -hmm. on, be funny for a half hour, and then leave. Yes, that's all I want. I just want lo-fi rawness. None of the scripts. <laughs> Script checks, scripties, get out of here. What is wow. this? Guy, you actually just made an impassioned plea for game shows. So I actually have a tear in my eye as you tap Absolutely. into my brand. Exactly. Uh, okay. No, Lewis, the only reason I agreed to do that, uh, to do this show, other than it being a great show and me, of course, uh, loving it, crooked, love it, loving crooked media, is the opportunity to talk to you about Only Connect as we go into the finale. Like, oh my God. Oh, Only Connect, if you guys don't know, because I've only brought it up 70 times on this show, is a British game show where you have to figure out what four seemingly random things have in common. And the host of it is this diva that Guy and I are particularly obsessed with named Victoria Corin Mitchell, who manages to be to be like Alex Trebek level committed to the integrity of of the game while being actually witty and never awkward at any time, which Alex will, I'll just say he had some problems with that. But uh, <laughs> uh, at any rate, we have to now talk to Aida on this show. All we do is gossip about what the fuck actors are thinking. And mm -hmm. now you're one of them. Uh, yeah, I have so much to report. I have so much to report. Um, 
trailers are awful. Crafty is awful. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a, I think, you know, I overall clearly had a great experience, but the very unique thing about my situation was I was a writer on this show and I wrote a lot of the other scenes. So I was really invested in being in Video Village. Um, glossary term. That's the place where everybody sits to look at the screens and monitors to monitor what's happening. Um on the camera so I would be sitting in video village making sure the other scenes are going well and I, I was invested in everything so I didn't really get a break um and I and I had I have control issues so I couldn't just rest and not be not be there watching everyone and then when you weren't on the show you were largely in like a quarantine situation for some of them yeah. wasn't weren't you yeah mm-hmm. interestingly enough I think one of the last episodes I did before I left was our Jennifer Coolidge episode mm-hmm. and she was talking about White Lotus and how they had filmed in a remote place where they weren't even allowed to leave their resorts the hairstylist at Rap Shit the sh- my show worked at White Lotus and was telling me about the situation and how being in Miami actually they had so much more freedom because at White Lotus they couldn't leave the small little remote island and their hotel. But at least in Miami, we were allowed to leave our hotel rooms and like explore the city. But we were in Miami, which was COVID central. Yeah. <laughs> there was so much fear. I was There was no way you, I'm going to be out there with the Cubans and Dominicans and the COVID. Okay. I, I could practice my Spanish skills at home, which is what I did. And I'm muy buena and I'm muy healthy. Okay. So I'm very happy to have stayed inside the whole time. But yeah, it was, it was a lot. Homegirl went through a lot. Thank you for that Duolingo uh, masterclass. Yes, I'm the green little bird. I'm that little (laughs) green parrot blob amorphous thing. That's me. Um, Being a multi-hyphenate is really, really hard. And understanding when to turn off certain parts of what you need to do so you can focus on the other parts is really, really hard. I just got done working on Billy Mm -hmm. Eichner's movie, and it it was a movie he had written... And like he was in almost every scene, but when he wasn't in a scene, he was still there, like helping guide the process and everything like that, which is why I think every March Mindy Kaling needs to hold a summit at Lake Arrowhead that is just like a multi hyphenate masterclass weekend. <laughs> yes, I think. And here's my opinion, my new life opinion about being a multi hyphenate. It's a waste of fucking time. Okay. <laughs> Put it away. You need to specialize. You need to pick one talent and you need to become very, very good at that because it's a life choice. It's a life choice to be a musician, a comedian. Like, what is Childish Gambino is tired? He just has to be tired. I want to have a life full of vitality and fun. So I think I might just be a screenwriter and a podcaster and just live my happily, merrily go along the life world. It's fine. I'm good. Uh, <laughs> also, you know, I, I will I will push back on that and I will say several paychecks though like when yeah. you're getting several paychecks for the same job it's not bad sorry for interrupting Lewis. you no, capitalist I, I, I mean i'm going to concur with aida and say that the human spirit is not an unlimited resource and that you should save some of it for like six months from now so mm-hmm. you know when you spend it all on like in a season of Issa race television show i believe she should you know go to court be yeah. held in contempt etc <laughs> so well, as we as we look at the fo- photo of Sandy Dennis over Lewis's shoulder, we need to remember <laughs> Sandy Dennis was not in the editing bay. Absolutely Sa- not. Sandy she was not. Dennis was not doing pawn shop. She did her work on the <laughs> stage, and it was pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. She was she was in up the down staircase. She was not up in the editing bay. Okay, that's it. <laughs> She she came back to the five and dime. She didn't come back to Video Village. All right, understand that. <laughs> um, that's all the Sandy Dennis humor. Uh, I'll throw I miss you today. five and dimes. <laughs> I mean, someone who was probably notoriously not even allowed in the five and dimes. I just missed the concept of a place where I could spend little to no money and get things with little to no value. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Aida, thank you. By the way, guy, congrats, of course, on being in... uh, uh, Billy Eichner's movie. Yeah, which that's dope. I did. Congrats. I did a little punch up on. I've only read a couple of the scenes that I was assigned work to, so I don't know the entire story. But I'm very excited mm. that the entire cast is LGBT. Is that right? Yeah, it was. It was a really fun, exciting, like all queer cast. Like, and it just made for a different kind of vibe. And it was also like people that like. You know, you have Guillermo Diaz, who's been in everything for the past thirty years, and then you had people uh, like. Miss Lawrence or T.S. Madison, who had never like acted in anything really before. And it was just a bunch of experiences, but like such uh, a shared good time. You're not going hey, to take Zola from T.S. Madison, guys. <laughs> no, that's true. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Did it have a small, small role in it, too? <laughs> so we carry on. That's really exciting. I, I didn't realize and maybe this is um breaking records, but have we had a film with just LGBTQ cast? 
before oh, I always, entirely? My strong insistence is that the only time it was ever tried was a league of their own. Uh, here we go. <laughs> yes. Lori Petty Hive, right. <laughs> Tank Girl, a movie you used to hear about all the time. And now Jesus it seems to Christ. have like what remember when just Bjork would be on your soundtrack? Anyway. Um <laughs> uh I was gonna say also uh, uh, Joel Kim Booster's movie Fire Island, I believe, is an entire LGBT cast too, and that was sort of shot yeah. concurrently. So you'll both be in the history books next to each other in mm. a shared photograph. Unfortunately, it's very like it's very exciting that you know things are coming out of the gate hard. You know we have options um, yes. instead of you know usually when you're in a marginalized group you get the one thing and then nothing for four years after that. Right. No, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, I believe, was supposed to keep us all. Tied it over for twenty five years. So the number it's nice. of these things, the number of these things that are legitimately all straight cast, uh, every and, uh, every single and, one of them. Yes, and I think the writer director, I think he did eventually come out, but he was like not out at the time that it came out. And it was like, what the fuck were they doing? Also, it's so good. Like it's just so hard when things like that are also just so good. Right, we're lucky. I'm, yes, I'm trying to think when we've had black lesbian representation in film and. I'm just getting a Cleo, 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 this alarm in my head. And that's all, all I was. Jada has her moments where I'm, I'm like, this is implied lesbianism. I mean, <laughs> Set It Off, I worked at a theater in Oakland when Set It Off came out. And there were very clearly people who felt represented by that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got like Go Fish, um, like the... I'm from the 90s, and so I remember the uh, indie movies that we were supposed to be excited about. But when it comes to Black lesbian representation, why has there not been more conversation about passing this year? Like, Oh, no kidding. Well, I've tried to start it. Yes. Like, I mean, the thing is, is, and it is, that is a glacial fucking movie. Mm -hmm. It's fucking, you know, but also, so is Power of the Dog, so are so many movies this year. But passing is so fucking good and does not give you more then is reasonable of the subject matter, but it is, like, it is electric. It is electric. And also having, like, Tessa Thompson, a queer woman, in that role for something that is so much a story of implication is just... Guy, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to represent the Black community because we are a (laughs) monolith. Thank you so much. We always forget when light-skinned women are queer. That's just what we do. <laughs> and we never show up to support them. We'd be like, okay, girl. Okay, Amanda Stenberg, you're what? Go ahead. Carry on. Like, And it's definitely an issue in my community, and we're working on it, and we're going to have a meeting next week, and we're going to all see passing. That's what's going to happen. Lewis, the scene where Tessa Thompson and the old white faggot talk shit about everyone dancing is like one of those when I felt truly oh. seen moments. Like, that catty bitch. It is the best. Right. <laughs> also, Tessa Thompson at first, her like her performance is way more subtle than Ruth Negas, who like jumps off the screen and has this real like both kind of um, vivacious lived in, but also obviously tragic characterization yes. going on. Like you're sort of enamored of her and like solving her. But then Tessa really like weighs the indecision of the movie really well. Like it be- it's, it's like a slow burn performance that ends up feeling equally as important by the end. Well, and also such a like deconstruction of respectability politics. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and kind of in your face about it. That's yeah. that part actually feels not no part of that movie wants to be quote unquote contemporary, but those discussions yeah. do. So, um, okay. When we're back, we'll get into recent deaths and I guess just weep our eyes out. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Keep It. Some of our brightest stars and greatest minds had no interest in participating in another calendar year. And they took advantage of the sleepy week between Christmas and New Year's to shuffle off those pesky mortal coils. By God, we lost so many greats over this break, which one after another were like thuds on the human soul. Uh, I'll just randomly pick one. Let's start with Joan Didion. And thank God the gay community's Joan Didion himself, Guy Branham, is here. Oh, I love that for you, Guy. She is from Sacramento. Guy is from somewhere over there. Yes. And in the way that like Lady Bird now speaks to your people, Joan Didion used to and continues to. But specifically, what does her work do for you? The thing is, is I I came from a place that nobody talked about or nobody thought about that was so weirdly in between 
cultures and identities. And I didn't know how to think about it. And I really, truly did not understand where I was from until I read Joan Didion. And she talked about Mm. the layers of like immigration and like mental colonization that California is. Um, She just had like a harsh, stark clarity, um, a cruelty in her ability to evaluate herself and other people um, that for me was like, it helped me understand myself, but it was also such a clear reflection of this weird, hard, unglamorous place that um, I came from. I mean, like that quote at the beginning of Lady Bird, anyone who thinks of California as decadent has never uh, experienced Christmas in Sacramento. Um, like to me, Pauline Kael and Joan Didion are the, are the people who made me understand the parts of Northern California that I was from. And like her legacy is weird and interesting because you also have this generation of Instagramming girls like one of my friends texted me with like, was she really good or was she just thin? Because there, there was the way <laughs> oh that the, the cigarettes and the Corvettes and the swoop of hair and the vague sadness really like felt like a safe place for a certain type of person to look for intellectual glamour. Um, and I think that that's true. But I also think that she was so much more than that. I believe that was an Ingrid Goes West joke. <laughs> so like, 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 she's kind of author a lot of people bring up and maybe they haven't read her or whatever. But I mean, when you read Joan Didion, first of all, it's like she's playing chicken with you. She's like, you want me to go darker? Get ready. Yeah. Like, she's, she's, she's the rare combination of unsparing, but also not preachy. Like, there, there was something about, like, her style was, like, journalistic enough that you could just take the occasional dourness as just the way things were. It wasn't someone like forcing a point of view on you. It was somebody really taking in millions of details mm-hmm. and distilling them perfectly on paper. Wh- whether she was talking about the Santa Ana winds or her fucking migraine, which she can for nine days. I, I, mean, I have a special relationship with Joan Didion. I mean, that, we're down like Betty White and Joan leaving this this past week. Like I'm down to one more woman, one white woman in white in culture. Um, Joan Didion, this is what's scary about her writing to me so much so that I use a year of magical thinking. I read it kind of biblically in the way that I've been undoing. And I've talked about it on the podcast, the grief of losing my brother in 2017. Um, I was in college at the time and I had been gifted a year of magical thinking by my English literature teacher after he found out that my brother had passed and his brother had also passed. And he said, this book really helped me get through it. And he gave it to me. And I remember still refusing to take bereavement and going to my short story class and sitting there and going, guys, sometimes people just die and that's just what happens and we have to move forward. And just this cool calmness that had been given to me from reading A Year of Magical Thinking that I had um, maybe not warp speed gone through the first stage of grief, but I've been able to contextualize and understand it because of how honestly and and just plainly Joan Didion talked about losing her husband and her daughter. So she would just always have a special place in my heart. She's kind of like this angel that has led me through understanding the very simple phrase of like grief comes in waves. And, you know, for a 19 year old girl, that's the first time you've heard something so poignant about what you're experiencing. And to it, she's that woman is so special. Aida, what a grim angel to have. Right? Also, those <laughs> I relate best. to her so yeah. much. I mean, the thing is, is I feel like so much of her writing, the thing you were saying, Lewis, about she never felt preachy. And I think it's her writing was more about her trying to convince herself of how the world works than about anyone else. It was about her trying to, whether it was not making five at a Kappa at Berkeley or her husband and daughter dying in the same year, it was you know, she she told herself stories in order to live. She was writing so that she could try to make sense out of things. I just want to say, by the way, about that quote, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. I, oh, oh, it's always LOL to me when people put that in their profile, like, you know, suggesting like they think it means imagination is the key yes. to life or whatever. When really what she's saying is we assign orderliness to chaos yeah. in order to not self-destruct <laughs> I, mean, I, I um i was i recently re-watched actually the center will not hold that netflix documentary about her life where she's very happy you know the way she talks and she throws her arms up and it's just so matter of fact she's adorable um and there's a moment in it too where you know i think for women like me joan didion represents a way to be 
a way to be that we've never seen in media. Like she's vulnerable and funny, but serious and grim. And she carried that personality trait all the way into her death. And I feel represented. <laughs> I just feel represented all right. as a person. Ooh, what an advertisement. All right. Uh, moving along. Bell Hooks fucking passed. Now, oh, here's God. the thing. With a couple of these people, namely Betty White, you know, Betty White, arguably we've never anticipated a celebrity death yeah. more. But this is so the, oh, I didn't know we were getting the end of Bell Hooks. Yeah. Um, somebody who, uh, a cultural critic who, I mean, uh, among tons of things, made me reconsider like, when I was like a teenager, oh, is Madonna's Vogue harmful? <laughs> and, you know, yeah. stealing from the p- people who like should be in full possession of this particular dance craze. But uh, Guy, what is your history with Bell Hooks? I mean, I went to Berkeley in the 90s. Like, it, mm. <laughs> you know, um, it, like it was just part of a process of, you know, as like as a white person growing up in America, the number of people who are telling you you should think outside of your own experience are are limited. And it was like her writings were such a a great way of going into um, like an uncompromising, an uncompromising view, you know, somebody like writing from her own perspective um, and like, not catering to me, but inviting me into her world. Mm-hmm. I'm actually, you know, super interested in how white people digest bell hooks. Hashtag no coon shit. Hashtag just educated black girl who wants to know. Um, yeah, bell hooks. This was this death was unfathomable for me because her writing has steered every course of my life. Like every time I've had a major breakthrough about black femininity, womanism my understanding of self, it has been guided by bell hooks reading. I mean, every black woman I know is perpetually halfway into reading all about love. We're just working our way. We are trugging along. And, you know, I think what her, what she really offered to me was this cutting simplicity about shit. I'd never thought about like bell hooks would say something like you ought to love the work that you do. And I'd be like, damn, I should love the work that I do. Like I shouldn't be compromising my integrity to do things that I don't give a fuck about. And this isn't like having to work at Shopco or work at the, at the pay less because you need to make money. This is opting for a life that is optimal for your utility and your happiness. And she she's really good at helping black women free themselves of these, the, the invisible hands and the very visible hands as well that push us into things that we don't want to be doing. Again, it's also just nice that both she and Joan Didion, like also cared about pop culture. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. They would get into things like, I, I just grew up thinking like, of pop culture as a distraction, like something like the people around me like wouldn't want to talk about at length. Mm. And to read people who are like, no, let's get the full story behind blank. Let's, you know, uh, Joan Didion, for example, talking about, I, I mean, I think I read an entire piece of her about like jo- Jim Morrison yes. one time. And it's just yeah. the, the idea that there can be just an entire ethos behind a celebrity or whatever is not exactly intuitive to me growing mm-hmm. up in, you know, the Midwest around people who, you know, don't really want to talk about voguing for, you know, 10 pages <laughs> well, th- or something. I think that goes back to how these women made us feel seen as people and identifying this type of person that was an observer, somebody who cared about the shifts in culture, somebody who wanted to ab- like abstract and theorize about these things because it made us understand the world around us. And when I was, again, watching the documentary about Joan Didion, I know we're talking about Bell Hooks now, when she just talked about how she loved being around Jim Morrison and the rest of the Doors because she got to just observe them while they led their ruckus lives like that's so cool that's so Mm -hmm. cool that we can identify personality types and find a way to communicate through them and with them we also lost jean-marc valet a noted uh director namely of uh big little lies most importantly recently um in which we got nicole kidman at her most delicate and her most fierce (laughs) which is what she does arguably but uh somebody who is also incredibly young like 57 years old do you have a favorite Jean-Marc Vallée project or thing? This is entirely a you guys question. I did when when oh. I did find out about his passing though, I went back and tried to revisit the things that I'd seen and Dallas Buyers Club is the only movie that I was aware of. And so, yeah, that was I mean, it's unfortunate, but I I, I am quite uneducated on him. Um like 
I, I really enjoyed uh, Young Victoria. I really enjoyed uh, Dallas Buyers Club in its way. It was, it's, for me, it, it's hard to talk about Dallas Buyers Club because it is so filled with um, problems around the representation of a trans character. It is so filled with uh, problems around representation of um, queerness and AIDS activism. And like uh, Stephen Paley, uh, the publicist, who is also sort of one of, uh, I think I'm getting his name right, um, you know, a, an AIDS activist in the, the 90s, sort of processing this through his uh, Instagram has been really helpful to me because he was somebody who fought with Valet a lot and fought with the screenwriters a lot about the representation of, um, you know, medication within, like, the HIV AIDS community. Um, and and his sort of, like, eulogy valediction to Jean-Marc Vallée as somebody who he fought with, but through who both of them learned from, um, I really appreciate it. And I also just really appreciate anybody whose career has to go through the journey of being good enough to graduate from Canada and get to come <laughs> to America and do their thing. And it's just like, for me, the archetypical case is always Sandra Oh having to win two Genie Awards before she gets to be on Heartless. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But the fact that that... No, this, is, uh, th this, is, when I, this answers the riddle, why isn't Rachel McAdams a superstar? I'll tell you why. She's too Canadian. Yeah. That's why. Well, and yeah. it's also just like... You know, for Jean-Marc Vallée, I think it was like 10 years of his career that are projects that a lot of people aren't familiar with because mm -hmm. they were just proving he was good enough to be taken seriously by, you know, America. Also, I just want to say about Dallas Pirate Club, my main problem with that movie is, obviously the casting thing is a separate uh, issue, but... Jared Leto in that movie, that character comes on, the trans character is so immediately angelic. You know the the character's entire arc the yes. minute she is on screen. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, let me guess, tragic death and you're going to have a monologue in a mirror. <laughs> let me guess. And then lo and behold, <laughs> here we are looking like the walking on broken glass video. But yeah. Also, we have to mention Wild. Wild is an amazing movie. Um, it like, tr like truly he and Reese did amazing work together. And also, that was probably the the formal beginning of the Dernissance, of when <laughs> Laura Dern rose rose into the heights of whomever, Laurence Olivier, or people we can't stop celebrating. I mean, Lewis, like we had the Dernissance, like uh, we had the the Catherine Hahn moment. Twenty twenty two, which venerable character actress is going to get the unreserved love of the gays? Like, mm, well, all right. Aida already uh, brought up Jennifer Coolidge. Oh. Who's going to be coming? This I, I think I think it's time for Judy Davis again. I just oh. I think it's some angst angst driven actresses whose entire thing is showing their bottom teeth. <laughs> That's important to me. Yeah. Uh, but like, don't hold me to that. We will see. And finally, uh, before we, I, I guess, get to the show, this is all part of our intro or whatever. Uh, Betty White. Now, I. First of all, I just want to say that I am wearing a match game shirt that you can't even see on camera because I completely misunderstand the point of having a podcast and believe I should be providing <laughs> visually for you. But secondly, I already said this before, we've never been more prepared for a celebrity death. And it's in a way satisfying to pe see people stammering to understand her greatness and her universality and why she has endured. Obviously, we have uh, Golden Girls is still on. You you can't avoid reruns of Golden Girls. You you accidentally seen ten episodes. I wish I could say the same thing for the Mary Tyler Moore Show yeah. at this point, but I feel like I am the last generation of people who definitely grew up being like, "Wow, Sue Ann Nivens is not just funny; she is scary. Yeah. She is uh, that 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 that's a mean whore. You know, not all whore, not all whores are giving." Um, uh, she's also uh, an amazing game show contestant. She was obviously married to Alan Ludden. Uh, uh, legendary game show host of uh, Password and all its iterations. And in fact, Betty White's uh, last word, according to at least Vicki Lawrence, or a telling of what Vicki Lawrence had said, was Alan before she died. And that is, I mean, what are you supposed to do with that information? Get through your day? <laughs> yeah. It's just so... And also, by the way, this is somebody who had a lot of fun later in her career. She's like, fuck it, I'll do Bringing Down the House. Mm -hmm. You know, F fuck it, I'll host a show called Off Their Rockers. She just like, was game for she anything. She was nominated for a Best Actress Emmy before my mom was born. Wow. <laughs> like, Life with Elizabeth. Yes, like, yeah. she was on a sitcom that was locally produced by a Los Angeles broadcast station. 
Um, the, like, I'm somebody who learned about her from the Golden Girls, like so many people did. And I, of course, loved her the way that I loved that everyone in that ensemble. But it wasn't until later when I was exposed to the Mary Tyler Moore show that I started to really understand the breadth of what this person can do. Like, to me, what's amazing is like, if Rose Nyland is the biggest and best of the things that she did, it is such a specific, like, to, to do that kind of dumb, sweet uh, swing for eight, ten years of your career, but also be able to be Sue Ann Nivens, like, to, to give us <laughs> yeah. so much and such breadth. And then, like, to, to your point, just being that character and figure within the world of daytime game shows. And really, like, Lewis and I were sort of tweeting back and forth about it, but the fact is, is, like, if you got paired with her on the pyramid, you knew you were going to win. Like, she was yeah. good. She was really good at what she did. She took it seriously. And she was never a mess. And I think I am somebody who loves shiny floor television. And I love <laughs> the elegance that goes along with somebody being really good at it. And people were posting that clip of her and Joan Rivers going back and forth at each other during Joan's guest hosting days at The Tonight Show. And it was amazing. I like She came and did Chelsea Lately when I was working there. And you have somebody in their 80s coming in to sort of like a raucous TV show and you don't know how it's going to play out. And realizing this person in her 80s was as capable as improv, of improv, of in the moment, sort of like pulling jokes out of the air as she had been at 60 or 40 was like dazzling. Um, like it made me realize maybe if we have jobs that we love and tax us and take a lot of <laughs> out of us, we can hope to have the, that kind of capability that far into our lives. And I just want to reiterate that Betty White actually came from radio initially. And at some point, she was doing five and a half hours of radio a oh. day. So she was somebody who was primed for, camp. shall we say, like panel shows yeah. and, you know, game shows and things like that. Like so. And, and also, she she always had that margarine soft grin, but her humor was always so much slyer yes. and even more wicked than you expected. I love the subversion she always I felt, yeah. And my of course, my introduction to her was Golden Girls and becoming obsessed with the television show. It was one of the only shows my mother actually would sit and allow me to watch with her when I was younger. And what I miss from, it's funny that you mentioned Chelsea Handler, I was going to bring her up. It's what I miss about Betty White and the class of comedians that came way prior to my generation and generation before that and even before them is the ability to play like dubious and mean at the same time. Like there was <laughs> yeah, so much yeah. character work that went into what Betty White was doing. And I, I could feel it was palpable. Like she's trying to be and present as a facade, but below that, like what you're saying is a slyness. And then, you know, the generations after that, we get like a Whitney Cummings or a Chelsea Handler where the role of the female comedian is to be a little bit more biting and a little bit more like political in their opinions. And I miss I miss when I miss when Betty White could just come and smile and say some cute flirty shit and act like she didn't know that she just said it. I miss mm -hmm. it. Yeah, mm -hmm. I miss that. I miss that a lot. I want to say the last version of that we had formerly was maybe a Goldie Hawn. Mm -hmm. You know, but that's a whole other episode. <laughs> we can't be doing that right now. But uh, we're going to get into our most anticipated TV, movie, and album releases of the coming year. And also, I I always feel bad when we do this because how much can you actually foretell? Like, I don't know what Timothy Chalamet is going to be doing in September. We can only foretell up to like yeah. April. But anyway, we'll do our best. Welcome back to Keep It. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I 
effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. So even though we had this pandemic, apparently they're going to keep going with TV, movies, and music. I'm shocked myself. But uh, I thought we would all talk about the stuff we're anticipating coming up. And I'm going to start with something we're getting pretty immediately. The new Scream movie, which I am mad that it's not called Scream 5. I guess for marketing reasons, you don't like if, if I'm like 15 years old and I've never seen a Scream movie before, I'm not going to want to start with number five. So maybe, all right, I understand leaving it out of the title. But at the same time, does anybody else just find this maybe one of the most essential series of like the past 25 years? There's something about the main characters, namely uh, David Arquette counts too, but Courtney Cox and Nev Campbell, <laughs> where it's just like the best of glowering, cynical 90s. I can't explain it. Like, I don't even think of Nev Campbell as much of like a powerhouse as an actress, but just as a mood, yeah. you know, the way Kristen's the way Kristen Stewart is sort of like a master of a mood. Nev Campbell was uh, at one point, too. And I'm so happy to get that well, back. John Early so perfectly embodied it in his sketch sweater acting. Um, yes. Like it, it is <laughs> the core of what Nev Campbell is. What scares me about Scream is like the Scream movies have always been about meta storytelling as much as they were storytelling. And I guess I'm not respecting the extent to which that was true of the like classic 80s horror films, which are, are things I I hate horror movies. I fucking love Scream. Like, yeah. you know, because mm -hmm. it, it was about like gender and the way we tell stories about bodies like women's bodies and well i don't like things that do things in earnest like you're just trying yes. to scare me fuck you get out of <laughs> also, here also there's just something real <laughs> like, about like no. these characters handle terror with an eye yeah. roll you know like how many times mm -hmm. do you get that you know like th they have to act the part of terror most of the time whereas in this case they're you know in the first movie aware of the rules of horror movies or aware that it's and then eventually they're aware it's going to happen again like there are layers of them knowing what's about to happen to them just like real people so it's it's always mm -hmm. been realer than the average yeah. horror movie yeah, to me, it's like a genre breaking of the fourth wall and not to get all educated for no reason, but like it feels postmodern in the way that we are identifying tropes and making fun of the tropes and the audience is in on it too. Like we get to be here for this ride and there's no fear. It's We just get to have fun and that's one of my favorite things about comedy that is transferred over into horror. So it's, it's revolutionary. I, uh, and it's, in the climax of the original screen, when like in college Guy Branham watched Nev Campbell shove her finger <laughs> into that boy's hole like um to retake control <laughs> of the situation I fucking melted it was like it was all of the gender criticism I wanted with all of the playful pop culture yeah. it was an advancement on Sigourney Weaver calling aliens bitch yes, yes. you know <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, if we're talking... So you're excited for yes. Scream. Lewis is excited oh, for yes. Scream. Uh, okay. Go ahead, Aido. Tell us something that you're um, raring for. Well, rap shit notwithstanding. I'm excited for you guys to get to see it. Um, I am on camera. But that well, I don't know if that's coming out until like June, July. We'll have can no we, clue. Can we, get, but, can we just um, refresh people on the log line for this series? Yes. I play a character. Um, her name is Shauna. And she moves back to Miami very disgruntled after having to drop out of college and creates a rap group with her friend Mia, like an estranged friend from high school. So it follows their antics as they try to make it in Miami. And it's very exciting. It's very fun. It's I think the, the storytelling, like the vehicle by which we are storytelling, I'll let you guys see it and wait. It's so mm -hmm. different from Insecure. It's so different from any other television show I've ever seen. And I'm excited. I'm just very excited for you well, guys to Well, I was going to say, if anybody knows antics, I'm going to trust you. Maybe the foremost authority <laughs> me, on antics. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, what am I most excited for? 
Okay, this is something, maybe this, you guys don't care about this, but we're getting new Brockhampton. Mm. For any girl or gay who was on Twitter in 2017, you know that there was no escaping the clutches of Kevin Abstract and his harem. And they're coming back, and I'm very excited to see what they do. But most importantly for me, um, someone who's obsessed with stand-up, Ali Wong is giving us a third special, and therefore a third baby. <laughs> so I'm so geeked. I'm so geeked. I'm not sure if she'll be pregnant for this one. Maybe she will break the curse. But I'm I'm very excited to see one of my very, very favorite comedians come up in flats and a cheetah dress and talk her shit. She, when she goes on stage, really is like lunging at the audience. I love the attack with which she like throws down jokes. The um, There's something, uh, there's a merciless quality to her with, 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 while also being constantly charming too. Like mm-hmm. she is the best of, like she started out in San Francisco like I did. And it is a San Francisco sensibility to comedy that I am just so proud of, that it is hard, hard jokes, but that she is always bringing honesty and truth. I will never forget the first time I saw her talk about basically do the chunk that um, is the final chunk of Baby Cobra. I saw her doing it at like a storytelling show, and it was Mm -hmm. just so much more personal and vulnerable in the way that Ali Wong is vulnerable. She is yelling at you and telling you why you're wrong while she's being vulnerable. And it is, <laughs> it makes me so happy. Well, if we're going to talk about San Francisco comics who are hard joke tellers, Guy, you have five seconds to name the woman I am thinking of, who I believe remains underrated and is in fact my favorite comedian of all time. Oh, whoa. Oh. Who, um, I don't know who you're thinking who? Oh, Paula oh. Poundstone, of course. Uh, see, oh my is, God, here we go. You're keeping I, this woman's name alive. It started in San Francisco because it was this crazy period where truly everyone was in San Francisco, like Dana Carvey, and like it was just sort yes. of like a ridiculous mm-hmm. volume of amazing comics coming out of there. That's the healthy. Why are you guys so dry and loud? Is it the trolleys? <laughs> just explain to me what what is it that makes you so dry and loud? <laughs> Uh, the, the, I feel like that there'll be a movie someday about um, the era of comedy where you'd be doing it, and once out of every six times, Robin Williams is in the audience and ends up on stage. Um, it was the best part of starting comedy in San Francisco. It was like, periodically, Robin Williams would 100% show up, um, like, do an hour of material, maybe steal one of your jokes, and if you mentioned it to, it, to you, he would give you, like, 10 grand. Like, tr- truly... My my comedy <laughs> career started out with audience. There were people to laugh at my jokes because they knew Robin Williams might show up. And it was like a true gift he gave to that town. And like, I respect it and appreciate it so much. I love how he was in some ways, like basically a minor bird. He would just, he couldn't help that he heard a joke one time. And during his like stream of conscious sputtering, that was his performance. He's like, well, I mean, you know, j- 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 like a like a pole string on a Woody from Toy Story doll. The line has to come out. That and what I would also imagine too is that um, Robin probably thought, and I've heard this from other comedians that have experienced the grunt of it, that Robin knew he could do their joke better. <laughs> like you have this, you have this seed of an idea that you haven't even elaborated upon the way I could. So I'm going to just take it. The material always took a backseat to the on. His onness was more important than whatever he was saying. Uh, does right. that make stealing a joke mm-hmm. okay? No, but it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, there were occasional voices he did. I'm sorry, we'll get back into the present in a second. But like when he would do... Well, I'm anticipated for the return oh, of Robin okay. Williams this year. It's happening, so that's fine. Uh, Carry on. Aida is our link to QAnon. If you didn't understand that guy, yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot about my position. Let me let me get back in. But it. um, no. Occasionally, he would do character voices. Like when he would do his voice, that was like, what was he imitating there? Yeah. <laughs> like the importance. It's just it was a crazy character, but I don't know what it was supposed to be. Any guesses? Okay. Guy, what else are you looking forward to coming up? Okay, the thing I am looking forward to this year is The Lost City with Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. I I have gone on record (gasps) as saying, and this is very controversial to say in front of Louis Vertel, that I think Channing Tatum 
is our Madeline Kahn. Like that's a very crazy thing to say. Sorry, I'm <laughs> I'm upset and now clutching but the also, table. Like Red Fox having a heart also, attack. Also, it's just true. We mistook because this was a cisgendered heterosexual man with pecs that he was supposed to hold guns and be masculine and in charge for us. And he has always been a charming light comedian. Like, (laughs) and he is, both of these people are so effortless of tone in a romantic comedy that seeing them together makes me so excited. The premise of the movie is basically kind of just romancing the stone. And he is a Fabio to um, Sandy Bullock's like romance writer. I don't know much more than that, but it's an original IP, kind of, which is rare enough in comedy these days. And it's two people (laughs) I would truly trust my life to their capacities with romantic comedies. And I'm just so excited to see what they do. I mean, like, he's so good. The Las Vegas show based on his movies is charming and wonderful. (laughs) Like, I want to see what he's doing. I guess you can count on Sandy Bullock for always acting in original IP. Yeah. Has she ever been in like a kind of franchise? I guess besides the uh, Minions thing where she was a, vi- a villain once, but otherwise, well, d- defender of uh, of taste, uh, Sandy Bullock. <laughs> also, a quick perusal on Shanning Tatum's IMDb would reveal he is in pre-production for a movie called Pussy Island that is directed by Zoe Kravitz. So I'm going to just add, throw that in without even knowing yeah. what the fuck is going on. <laughs> We have to support that. Okay, but I I can't let go of this crazy allegation that he's the new Madeline. Oh, the Madeline. Excuse me. Do you want to see Channing Tatum in a Wendy Wasserstein play, baby? I'm sorry. I don't know if you were right about that one. I think you're shorting him of the emotional depth that he actually does possess, and the ability the ability that he has to stand alongside of Jamie Fox in Shanning all over my Tatum or whatever the fuck that song was oh, right. called. There's a whimsical whimsy. To, I know I forgot. About fa- that yeah, wait, that was my time. TV show. Was it not Jimmy Kimmel live? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't miss whimsy. Yeah. I miss, well, I like him he, in whimsy. Sure. He also just has like a weird tone in the way that she was a weird tone of an actor that like nobody else provided you with the same energy. Like, do you know Interesting. Do you know what that reminds me of? And in, in what I believe is an underrated performance, Chris Hemsworth in the Ghostbusters reboot, yes. where it was like all tone, mm. the entire, all like playing dummy, etc. Yeah. Um, like there was one Mel Brooks movie, I think silent movie, where he tried to slot somebody in to what was clearly a Madeline Kahn role, who was just sort of like pretty and nice. And it was like, oh, we all understand that this doesn't work. Uh, Speaking of Master of Tone, we're getting Russian Doll Season 2 this year, apparently. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, One of the few, like, perfect six-episode arcs of television, I think. And also, Natasha Lyonne, she she always belonged to, quote, Left of Center by Suzanne Vega, on the outskirts and in the fringes. And to see someone, (laughs) like, to see a television show completely aim its lens at her like we're focused squarely on this person who's usually there to smoke a cigarette and roll her eyes at whatever's happening that there was an entire world to her in addition to whatever meta groundhog day narrative uh russian doll provided was so gratifying it was so gratifying to see her anchor a tv show god do you it just like that's Mm -hmm. that that i think is like the most ideal thing about the streaming era is like taking chances on someone like that yeah yeah, and I think that goes into what we're getting Barry season right, three mm-hmm. and we're getting Atlanta season three. Two things. I These are my favorite comedians, uh, male comedians that are have managed to cross over into the TV world unexpectedly like they're having their own television show. And I don't know if without an FX or without Bill Hader being able to transition from SNL to Barry that we would have such like weird, dark, surreal narratives about black rappers in Atlanta and hitmen. Like the, it, these are my favorite television shows. I can't wait for them to come back. Shout out Bill Hader, who is probably one of the smartest like comedians I think we've we've gotten a chance to have in the past de- few decades. Um, like it, it does make you wonder. Like, the, okay, first of all, about Natasha Leon, the fact that we have mm-hmm. an actor whose primary energy is blousy, who we met when yes. she was like fifteen years old, is so perfect. <laughs> but realizing she's now 
only now hitting the sweet spot of what her energy has possible um, is so much fun. But the thing that you're saying, Lewis, it just does make me think about what it like. What if the 80s or 90s had had this capability? What if we had been yeah. able to get two seasons of a show that was just about Alfred Woodard? That was just about yes. like, um, you know, mm. look, uh, and just like that, throwing women of color at the screen as hard as they can has been a kind of rough game. But like seeing Sarita Chaudhry from Mississippi Masala getting to come back and be like a glamorous <laughs> lady in her 50s selling real estate has just made me so happy. Um, and it, it really is. I hate that we cannot make a show that lasts more than 50 episodes anymore. But I do love these weird flavors we're getting. Um, I, I just have to say that I am thrilled by the memeization of, hey, it's Che Diaz, the Sarah Ramirez character on And Just Like That, <clears throat> who I won't tr spoil anything, but gets into a romantic entanglement with one of our faves. And also to me, uh, here's my thing about that performance. Sarah Ramirez, Ramirez, I think, is giving a really realistic performance of an annoying comedian. <laughs> I mean, it is just hard hearing her hearing people say comedy concert over and over again is one of the most <laughs> uncomfortable things I've ever experienced. Um, but it, it does sort of like it is so weird to represent a non-binary stand-up comic when non-binary stand-up comics haven't gotten the opportunity to do stand-up comedy on television, representing a thing in script, in scripted media that hasn't had a chance to be real on its own terms enough makes me kind of uncomfortable that like, you know, like, yes, she is an annoying self-congratulatory comedian, I'm just like, couldn't we have gotten one of our real annoying self-congratulatory comedians <laughs> um, to like to live? You could have done a cattle call to for live that. that yeah. energy for us. Yeah, waiting. I love not a single book has been mentioned. We off books. We're illiterate this 2022. Please. I don't uh, know. One of, one uh, of my strong stances is that if you have books in your home that you have not read, you should throw them away because if you did not read them in May of 2020, you're not going to read that. Like <laughs> that's a really good yeah. point. Yes. That was peak that was peak like I yeah. I have nothing to do. I I'm going to I should turn around and see what resources I have in my home. Which reminds me, I am in particular looking forward to this year's Oscars, and I'll tell you why. Because if Don't Look Up gets nominated for anything, there will be chaos in the streets. <laughs> I am so blown away by the discourse over this. I'll say it. Um, I, I know people are calling it grandstanding and, you know, full of itself or whatever, but it really is just like an overlong comedy. I don't know. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's like it long, got it definitely. got wrapped up in the Oscar conversation. It's a movie that would normally come out in June or July or something. So maybe that's where the confusion comes in. But man, I am... I mean, Adam McKay, the uh, writer-director of the movie, and David Sirota, who also wrote it, have been somewhat defensive on Twitter about people, I guess, quote-unquote, not receiving the message of the film, which, in case you've <laughs> never received a message I before, have, it's like... about climate change. <laughs> but Yeah, I, I have sores on my head for how hard <laughs> they hit me with it. Like, I, look, I, as they should, they should defend this. I think, personally... I enjoyed the film for the certain moments that it had. I think it had a lot of failures in the messaging. Like there was one moment where they were trying to talk about a climate change movie and it was supposed to be self-referential to what they were making. And they were like, this movie with this studded cast and it was $300 million with a budget. And then I look up the budget for this film and it's 75 million. And it has this movie that's full of stunt casting that felt gratuitous and not necessary, except for my favorite moments where the Ariana <laughs> Kit Cuddy of it and the Timothy Chalamet. So it was fun. It was fun. But what I really didn't enjoy was the story wasn't mm -hmm. elegant. Like it just wasn't well yeah. written to me. And um but it did I, I here's what I did like about Don't Look Up. I I enjoyed seeing on screen finally the things that I was noticing in our society that hadn't really been put on television yet in film form, like the overtaking of pills, um, the zaniness of the of public figures. And we've, we've really hit like Effie Trinket levels of mm -hmm. insanity with the public figures. And that was represented in this. And I enjoyed that. Uh, it is yeah. self-righteous Mars attacks. Like at the end of the day, yes, well, correct, it is correct. just yeah. Mars attacks. Um yeah, it's really rough because I think that um, Adam McKay has done interesting good jobs of making us 
think about things. I mean, not so much the Dick Cheney movie, but like The Big Short was an interesting movie that sort of helped people understand a thing that had affected us globally and was sort of hard to wrap your head around. I just like there's this turn that successful heterosexual cis men make when they decide that they are going to become important. Like, he, yes, he was right. comedy guy, mm. and he, you know, like, how many fag jokes do we have, like, Adam McKay to thank for? You know, how many, like, how many movies where women were accessories instead of human beings? But now he's going to be important, and so he's going to yell at us and tell us that we're not being important enough if we don't respect him. And I just feel like the people who have made softer pivots in this way of, like, in you know, trying to listen, trying to think, trying to give voices to people who haven't had voices um, is maybe for me a stronger way of becoming important. He just so clearly wants, I mean, and he got an Oscar, didn't he? He like Yeah, for the big show, I yeah, read it. Yeah. He wants his Oscars and he is not going to stop until he forces all of us to give them to him. The dread of Don't Look Up is you know it's going to culminate with a screamy monologue from Leonardo DiCaprio. And it's the it's that Sorkin-esque thing of like, this has to culminate in impotent rage. Why else do we exist if we're not going to get impotent rage from this, you know, 40-something actor? <laughs> also, yeah. Also, I didn't enjoy the beginning scenes where he's like fucking up at the whiteboard. It was giving like bad will hunting. It was giving like... <laughs> incapable person i didn't enjoy that's not how i see leo that's not how i i don't it wasn't believable um this i will say this though it was one of the first films i've watched in a long time where i maybe i'm wrong didn't know uh -huh. how the fuck it was gonna end mm -hmm. like i'm very used to protagonists being able to solve the problem that they've created but this one was just hopeless and had no clue them sitting at the dinner table while they feel the rumblings of the yeah. comet coming to hit them and then the way it just takes out the whole table was a beautiful scene and maybe I they needed that budget it, it <laughs> maybe really they really was did sort need of the it. most emotionally touching sort of thing to like contemplate that moment of you know what do we do what matters to us and i also think it was kind of hard for that movie because that movie was insistent on being nihilistic and i think that like comedy and just sort of human art needs to understand that there like there are things that are beautiful even in times like that and i think that that scene captured that but so much of the movie just wanted to be like mm -hmm. it's bad and it won't get better the problem with satire mm -hmm. is you can often understand the point in three minutes <laughs> and that movie had a lot of minutes yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to say about emotional moments in this movie. I love that we're getting an upswing to answer your former question guy uh, for Melanie Linsky, oh, yes. who, who is, who's really good in the movie. Uh, we've loved her since heavenly creatures way back in the day with Kate Winslet. And now she is the star of this show, yellow jackets, which I just started watching on showtime. And it's about a, high school soccer team that gets takes a plane ride and they crash in the wilderness and they become cannibals for a while. And oh, then wow. 20 years later, what happens when they all survive it? Anyway, very fascinating. The <laughs> queers are eating it up. It's also the return of Christina Ricci, which I think she was the first actress I was ever obsessed with. When you're like, when you're a little gay kid and you see Wednesday Adams, like monotone, macabre handlings of everyday life that really zapped something into me. I was like, all right, I, I want to have tight braids too. <laughs> so anyway that's what we're looking forward to coming up and now when we come back we're going to inaugurate guy into our favorite segment of the episode it's mm. keep it coming up in a moment doors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode, and usually the spiciest. It's Keep It. Guys, since you're our beautiful and august guest, 
What do you have to say keep it to this week? This week, I would like to say keep it to lapsing international licensing rights. When we all woke up, <laughs> when we all woke up on January 1st, 2022 and went to Netflix to watch the Mel and Sue seasons of The Great British Baking Show to soothe us through this difficult Omicron-fueled like holiday season when we didn't get to see our loved ones, we found that all of the Mel and Sue seasons were gone. Oh, just go to Amazon and spend your hard-earned money so you can buy the Mel and Sue seasons. Oh, no, wait. Two days later, they were gone. Um, it's devastating. Like, that one of the most beautiful shows of our lives was torn apart by taking two of the softest and gentlest soft butch comedians. Uh, like, they were just so good at hosting because they understood you should care about the people, the things that people are baking. Like, just by having real conversations and letting the, the competitors be funny, they were so much better than any of the skits or bullshit we have gotten from the subsequent seasons. I'm really excited for Tom What's-His-Name, who hosted um, uh, the most recent, um, like, holiday season um, with Matt Lucas. I thought that he really got that, what hosting that show is. But, like, the fact that I cannot reach the Mary Berry, Mel and Sue seasons of Great British Baking Show um, is a mental health risk for me. So... <laughs> There's something about comfort TV and changing the formula of it that is like if Karen Carpenter started singing out of her range slightly. Yes. It's like, no, this isn't this isn't a brain massage <laughs> anymore. You've messed it no, all up. Like, like tr trying just a little bit more with the comedy destroyed that show when it really just needed to be. They, they said things kind of funny sometimes. And when they were in a foreign language, they kind of used an accent. Um, it was but not in a bad way. It was so good. So fuck you, BBC. Fuck you, Netflix. And fuck you, all international licensing rights that lapse. <laughs> and that's why we should only be watching Nailed It with Nicole Byer every single week. <laughs> I don't know why you're wasting your time. Um, I love how passionately you deliver Keep It's Guy. I think even prior to coming back, I had gotten, I've gotten kind of lazy in my anger. I've gotten kind of um, laser focused with it when it should just be wild and free. Um, <laughs> fuck Billie Eilish. Fuck no, I'm kidding. My <laughs> keep it. This, I'm kidding. I love Billy. Um, this week, I woke up to an email alert from a popular pop culture publication that said, "Guess what? Billy Eilish had red hair for a week." I got a whole email, a whole email about it. I've never been so pissed off in my life because I'm finally, I finally have free time. I finally get to understand what's going on in the world, and the first thing I receive is a message that an emo pinup doll has done something different with her scalp. I don't care. And look, I get it. Billy's entirety of her career has been marked by moments of hair changes and she had the green and the black and then her having blonde was his massive secret. She wore a wig. Like there's, there's, I get it. I get that a lot of the culture around Billy is what, what is going on with her dead skin cells. But unless <laughs> she's giving us a bald Britney moment, I don't care what that child is doing. I simply don't care. And the news article was like, did you guys know Billy had red hair for a whole week? A whole week. And it was her just sitting in her chair and it was a, a, a screenshot of an Instagram post. I don't care. I don't care what has happened to our, our culture and our society that we don't, we only care about the visual images of these pop stars. And I just, I'm guys, I'm going crazy. And maybe, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> this life thing. <laughs> just the whole maybe thing. Maybe this life thing this simply life. isn't for yeah. me. And Billy's beautiful and gorgeous. And I, deep down do care about what she's doing with her hair. But maybe I don't need to get email alerts about it next to like Akeisha Lance Bottoms apology and deciding to not run again. Like, it's just so <laughs> frustrating. The world is frustrating, but we're back in it. I, I would say it, it, it would be, I'm, I'm, I'm a journalism professor now. I'm in All the President's Men. It would be a story if her hair weren't dyed. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Billie Eilish reveals her natural hair color and it's blue. <laughs> like a Smurf. That's news to me. She's one of those people like Elle Fanning where she's still young. Like it, it never ends. Like some, like time stops for certain people. Like Elle Fanning is finally, you know, 20 or I don't know what she is, but that she gets to play high schoolers for the next 25 years. You know, we call this Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> um, my keep it this week is to the term Twitter troll under a certain context. And I'll tell you why. Uh, I don't know if you guys have kept up with popular under discussed on keep it television series Jeopardy. But 
uh, Amy Schneider is this now 24 day champ who is, and we've had a ton of super champs this season. So that feels almost um, boring to say, but she's a remarkable player. Uh, also happens to be trans, wears uh, uh, the trans flag as a pin. Uh, and handles Jeopardy like a caseworker and that she shows up to the board. She like every question is a fire she puts out, nods at and moves on. It's not really, you know, like, for instance, when I was on Jeopardy, I, I could hardly like um, keep in my winnies mm -hmm. <laughs> as I interacted with the board and the contestants and the sound effects or whatever. For her, it's not like that. She is just motoring around the board and then puts down the buzzer and the work is done. So she's just a pleasure to watch a very kind of unpretentious unshowboating contestant i don't relate to it at all but uh so because she's trans she has gotten can you believe it um some input from randoms on twitter <laughs> people whose names are like pikachu 1466633344441 and people uh I'll, I'll call them journalists have written about this by saying amy schneider claps back at twitter trolls yeah. who and the twitter trolls are saying things like you're a man. And, and I just want to say, first of all, Twitter trolls are people who maybe respond snarkily with memes. They're not hate speech spewers. Yeah. I think we need to put the hate speech in the headline every single time. It, to me, there's something depressing about the way this has been reported mm -hmm. on as if, as if trolling and hate speech are the same thing when they're not like it, 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 it bothers me. And Amy Schneider herself, somebody who has gotten a 1600 on her SATs, <laughs> who uh, is just casually genius in most ways, had a great response to it, which was, I'd like to thank all the people who have taken the time during this busy holiday season to reach out and explain to me that actually I'm a man. Every single one of you is the first person to ever to make that very clever <laughs> point, which had never once before crossed my mind. So obviously this is somebody who can handle this herself, but it's just, guys, if we're going to report on this, you can't be um, giving the hate speech the benefit of mm -hmm. the doubt it bothers me boo conflation <laughs> here we are <laughs> well, also it's 2022 I, like behaving as though something's entire character is that it happened online is like from 1999 like not everything <laughs> on twitter is same right uh i looked i, I learned this from altavista.com <laughs> thank you I should have checked my sources, unfortunately. <laughs> um, guys, that is Keep It for now. Uh, I'm so happy to be back. Thank you guys for following us into 2022. We'll, we'll, we'll do our best to navigate this without Ira and uh, his accents, which are the first accents to actually get somebody convicted of a war crime. <laughs> That's true. Uh, the Geneva Convention's working up papers on it right now. I Yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Appreciate you, UN. <laughs> I, um, I'm not going to acknowledge any of Ira's accents this this year that's what i'm resolving to do is to not gas that man any more than he's been gassed so uh here's a meme term that is overused but is valuable in this case that's called self -care. yes girl <laughs> <laughs> guy thank you for uh being here being yourself knowing every fucking thing thank you for having me can i plug dates Please, please. I'm going to be at the Arlington Draft House in Arlington, Virginia on January 21st and 22nd. So come to that. And here in Los Angeles, I'm doing an hour at Dynasty Typewriter for the Netflix <gasps> Joke Festival on April 29th. So Angelinos, get some tickets. Come on by. It's going to be a good show. First time I've done an hour in Los Angeles since before this wretched disease. And also, I just want to give a plug to Guy's book, My Life as a Goddess, which, first of all, I just sit around hoping someone will describe actresses really well. And this is what this man does. <laughs> uh, and understand the movie Babette's Feast the way this man does. But everything guys, Guy does is fabulous. And you'll, of course, hear him on more Crook Adventures in the future. That has been Keep It for this week. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. But I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin. And the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. take us to summers away 
or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.